Well, I got to say, when you hear that rock and roll sound, you know only one thing could be happening. It's Brooklyn Paper Radio live from downtown Brooklyn, America's downtown every Tuesday at 10. I am your co-host, Gersh Kunstman of the New York Daily News, a legend of the game, obviously former editor of the Brooklyn Paper, joined on my right by a handsome man who is the current editor of the Brooklyn Paper and other community newspaper group products. Current, you're saying current editor Vince, as, if, as if there's going to be a change or something. Vince DiMaselli. And I got to tell just in, in the interest of full disclosure, Vince, yes. we are joined by a third silent partner, Les Goodstein, the owner of the community newspaper group. You know, you've, you've oh, heard yeah. the expression... Vince, I don't know if you've heard the elephant in the room. I have heard that expression. The elephant is in the room right now. Les Goodstein, who pays your salary yep. and occasionally pays some freelance budget from, from my hosting abilities, is in the room, and he has said he's not going to comment at all, although he should, because we got a big show, Vince. I feel like a teacher, and like the principal just showed up. Yeah, that's yeah. it always changed the whole class. Suddenly, the, the teacher was so nice yeah. and so eloquent. And the kids, when they raise their hands, like Jimmy, Jimmy raises his yeah, hand, Jimmy he does it. it like calmly. Yep. He's not like, oh, 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 because the principal's in the back totally making sure agree. everything goes right. Totally agree. Well, so anyway. I expect our phone lines to work correctly today. Yeah. Don't I? Anyway, Goodstein, as I said, as I said, Goodstein is the owner of the community newspaper group, which ostensibly sponsors Brooklyn Paper Radio and funds it. He should know we have a great show, and the show is so good, Goodstein, who's not even mic'd up, may you may hear him in the background just screaming out questions for none other than Polk Award winner this year, Polk Award winner Alec McGillis. And friend of the paper. Friend of the paper, former Brooklyn paper reporter. Yes, he was, back in the late 1990s. There is no question in my mind. Some would say he's my protege. I was about to say, there's no question in my mind that Vince DiMaselli taught this young kid who's not young anymore... No, he's got, he's got gray hairs like me. <laughs> he taught him everything he needed to know. McGillis, also part but of a Washington Post Pulitzer Prize winning team. Yes, he was. That covered the Virginia Tech shooting. So this guy has hash marks down to the ground. A great reporter. We're going to be calling him in a couple of minutes, but I would be remiss if I didn't reach out to Vince physically and literally and say, Vince, how you doing? Well, last week, you know, I broke on the show. I broke. You did. You totally broke. There was a break. If you and get a minute to look at our archive, listen to the show about 15 minutes in. Vince is reading an ad for one of our sponsors, Atlas Steakhouse, which is also a sponsor with I, Atlas, I Meat Atlas, Market. Atlas Meat Market. Yeah. Atlas Meat Market. Of course, Dr. <laughs> Joseph Lichter, DDS, and our other sponsor, Village Caramax. Vince was reading an ad, a live spot, we call it. Yep. And what happened, Vince? I, I mixed up the words uh, chicken and, and steak. Yeah, and what did and you come it, it came out shticken. Shticken. And Atlas Meat Market, for the record, does not sell shticken. We're not aware of that. But if they do, go down to Atlas Meat Market and get some shticken. Yes, have some shticken. So if you can listen to that show last week. So I said shticken and I broke. You lost it. I completely lost it. And I, was, and I had this cold. I was coughing so badly they could not hit the cough button quickly enough. Yeah, the, where is that cough button? Jimmy, hit that cough button. <coughs> oh, it works. Me. It was weird. He hit the cough button and all of a sudden everybody started coughing. All right. Well, anyway, as I said, we're going to be talking to Alec McGillis. Now, you... <coughs> Vinny, you worked with this guy. You trained this guy. Yeah. And then he goes on and he wins Pulitzers and Polk Awards. Yep. I could take you and through his off whole the record, career. off the record, before he's even on the show, how do you feel about that? How do I feel about yeah. it? Yeah. As you know, Gersh, you know, what have we accomplished as, as journalists here in Brooklyn? Me I, and you. What it's all about the protégés, baby. I mean, that's it. What I've accomplished. It's all about the Benjamins, and I'm talking about Benjamin Music. Yeah, Ben Music, Alec McGillis, all these guys that have come through. Mike McLaughlin, Andy uh, Campbell, Stephen Rex Brown. Uh, Rex Brown's a legend. Ariella Cohen, Dana Rubenstein. Natalie O'Neill. 
Yeah, Natalie, a little bit. Kate Bricolet. Oh, the brick. Oh, she's awesome. Yeah, no. Da- all... Dan McLeod, by the way, just got a job as the managing editor of the Bangor Daily News. He got that again? I think I'm breaking that news. He keeps, Jim, he keeps Jimmy, going back, breaking and, news back music? and forth with that. Anyway, the point is, we've trained the best. They didn't come to us as the best. Vince, I got to tell you, Andy Campbell, when he showed up at this office, he couldn't tell the difference between the north side of Williamsburg and the south side. Had a tough time. He used to pronounce Nassau Street. He pronounced it Nassau. He literally <laughs> would say, I'm going to Nassau Street. Yeah, no, that's a I'm problem. I'm like, what, are you going to Haiti? What are you talking about? <laughs> and he became a great reporter at the Huffington Post. He did. He did go on to some weird things, I would, I would add. Speaking about great reporters, though, you have a story in the Brooklyn paper today. Uh-huh. And I got to say, it's a barn burner. Uh-huh. I never saw a newspaper go after Donald Trump, the Trump administration, with the kind of teeth, local teeth. Let me just be clear about something. We don't go after anyone. No, but you know a story. You know a story. We uncover the facts and then let the chips fall where they may. That's fine. But this is a bulldog of a story. But there's no no, no point during our editors meeting that I say, all right, we got to go after Trump. No, you're right. But tell tell the listeners what this story is about. Because this story, I read this story. And I was like, that is incredible. You yeah. want morning papers on this? No, story? no, no. Well, uh, give me a little music. Oh, give me a little, little music. music. I read the morning paper. We play that tune. We play that tune just to let you know we're about to talk about something that is in the pages on the website of the Brooklyn Paper, brooklynpaper.com. Vince, go. go. Paul Manafort. You know the man? Paul Manafort, a longtime com- campaign manager for Donald Trump, left the campaign shortly after the convention yeah. and has been in a shroud. Or should I say a red, a red shroud? A red shroud. Because of his connections to Russia and pro-Russia Ukrainian politicians, go. There you go. Well, he apparently owns a house in Carroll Gardens. Whoa, 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 whoa. Paul Manafort, an international man of intrigue, mm-hmm. owns a house in Carroll Gardens. He owns a home in Carroll Gardens, and some of the neighbors in Carroll Gardens found out about this. And the home is a little bit, it's being, it's, I'm not going to say it's in disrepair, but there were some neighbors that were saying that it's kind of messy, they're doing some work on it, they never get it done. But the big news happened when someone in the neighborhood mm. went and posted a sign on the front of the house yeah. that said, Paul Manafort lives here. They put a Russian flag there, and they wrote it and like made it look like it was like Russian letters. What do you mean, like acrylic? Yeah, acrylic. I believe it's Cyrillic, Vince. <laughs> Vince had a little problem with that earlier. <coughs> Wait, I'm objecting to this story on on ideological and on local ground. You're objecting to this already. Yeah. What? Why does it matter that Paul Manafort owns the building? I don't think it matters so much that Paul Manafort owns the building, but I think it does matter once residents start recognizing that and and posting what is essential. It's not graffiti, but it, they're, they're no. That is actually there. the definition of graffiti. It says Paul Manafort lives. Well, here. it's on a sign, so it comes down. Yeah, but it's still graffiti. Oh, it's a graffito. Graffito. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, hey, we got to get out because we got to talk to uh, McGillis and three McGillis. minutes. Okay, but but I'm upset at, about this story because it suggests a couple of things. What does it suggest? Well, Carroll Gardens, very liberal neighborhood, voted overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton. I'd say by 80, 75 to twenty five percent, according to the latest numbers. Yeah. My problem is Paul Manafort is a good neighbor, as far as I'm concerned. Now, is the allegation that he's a bad neighbor? Because that that goes. I go front page with that. Oh, no, yeah. No, some people were complaining that the house is not taken care of and stuff like that. But isn't he renovating the house? Isn't he doing he the right thing? He is renovating, but it's been taking a very long time as well. well. I mean, what the neighbors are saying. Look, you know, Vince, come on. You know that home renovations take a long time. They can take a long time. That is true. So is the allegation that this is enraging the neighbors more because it's red, it's, it's red baiting? It's red baiting. That's basically uh, what's going on there. That's what's going on there? <laughs> what was your lead on that story? It's a red menace. It's a red menace. There you go. Is it a red menace? Is it a red menace? Well, I think you'd leave that up to the readers. I don't think you did. <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote the story? 
Uh, that's a Lauren Gill joke. Oh, Lauren Gill, one of the great reporters. And I'll tell you, Lauren Gill, we're going to be calling uh, Alec McGillis Polk and Pulitzer Prize winner in a minute. I, I will make a re- I'll go on record. Jimmy, can you mark this, mark the time, the timestamp? Lauren Gill will win a Polk or, and or a Pulitzer within 10 years. You think 10 years? Within 10. It took Alex a little longer. No, from leaving the Brooklyn paper? Yeah, it took him more than 10 years. All right, let's get him on the phone. All right, we got to make that call. Yeah, you want to Now listen, do me a favor. Do not take do this not number. Do not take down. this, this is number. A very important. Do number. not take this number. Oh, you yeah, want me to dial it? Yeah, you do the dial. I'm dialing. Get some dialing music. Can we get uh, some dialing music? Dialing music. All right, we're going to lose we're losing Les Goodstein. He's well, giving us the thumbs up though. He's giving a big thumbs up. We mentioned the advertisers once already. Put yourself in for raises. $10 oh, $10 a week. $10 a week Thank in my you. pay packet. Our okay. phone is ringing. Here we go. You're going to start off? No, you can do you can okay. start off. Oh, we we're a minute early. I think it'll be fine. I Hello? hope so. Oh, is that Alec McGillis? It is. Alec McGillis, you are on the air live with Gersh Kuntzman, a legend of the New York Daily News, and of course, Vince DiMaselli, the man at the Brooklyn paper who taught you everything, and I emphasize everything you know. How are you, sir? I'm good, and I, I, I would agree with that statement. See that? I told you. Well, that's, that, that's, that's what we call a little bit of log rolling in our time. Thank uh-huh. you for that, Alec Mikulis. First of all, I want to thank you for joining the show. Just so you know, before you came on the air, we referred to you as a Polk Award winner. We referred to you as part of a Pulitzer Prize winning team. We referred to you as one of the great reporters of this country. Was that accurate? I wouldn't go that far, but, <laughs> Fair but thank you very much. <laughs> anyway, Alec, great, great to have you with us. Now, Vince, as you know, and I, I, am, I overemphasize this, Vince is a great mentor. And he really is a good guy. If you could, in your own words, tell us, in all seriousness, how you got your start, because we're going to talk about Donald Trump, we're going to talk about your Polk winner, we're going to talk about your Pulitzer, but how would you get your start, really, so our listeners know? I got my start at, uh, at a tiny little newspaper in uh, rural Connecticut, a small mill town uh, in Connecticut called uh, Winstead, Connecticut, which famous as the hometown of Ralph Nader, ah, and uh, right. I started out there at a tiny little weekly paper. It was just me and one other person, my editor. Um, we put out the whole paper together, and I uh, lived in a little cabin in the woods that I was... Um, what are you, Ted Kaczynski? <laughs> recently divorced bridge builder um, who put me up in one room in his cabin, Nice. and that's where I got started, and I moved on to a, a, a daily paper in Connecticut, a very good afternoon tabloid called the Journal Inquirer, east of Hartford, hmm. and then after a short time there, it came to the Brooklyn Papers, and all right, that's where it really all got, got started. Let's, that let's was my first time working in the, in the city. I'd never been in any city, lived in any city larger than New Haven. Um, I had never, you know, worked in a in a big city, so suddenly to be covering, help, you know, helping cover a massive borough, um, you know, back then was what like 2.3 million mm-hmm. or so, um, was was really something. Wait for the young reporters out there. I'm going to stop you for one second. You were working at a weekly in Connecticut, and you're one of two employees. Did you ever look up at the night sky in that cabin, McGillis, and say, you know what, I'm going to make a difference in this country? Like, did you? Was that I mean, in all seriousness, was that part of the hope? Did you think that you, you were going somewhere? Well, I, I was well aware of the, of the fact that I was at the very, very, very bottom sort of of the, the ladder, as it were. I, I'd been turned down for other jobs that I applied for coming out of college mm-hmm. at, at small daily papers. And that was, that was really the only job I got offered was at this weekly. I'm not sure what was wrong with me. But, but I, I, at the time, I was just enjoying it so much the work that I, I'm not sure how far down the line I was thinking. I was never really 
um, someone who was burning to get to like the New York Times. Like that was never like a sort of a New York Times or bust kind of thing. I, I was just really enjoying the work and and you know definitely hoping to to be able to do the work on, on a somewhat bigger scale. Um, but you know I I I I, it, I ended up um, finally after several more stops at the Baltimore Sun and. And I would have been really quite happy um, just kind of uh, spending most of my career at, at a place the size of the Baltimore Sun, except that the Sun started going through horrible cutbacks like a lot of places and, and made it uh, a difficult place to be. So. Wow. So you went, you went from Brooklyn Paper. And Alex, by the way, as you know, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I haven't spoken to you in a while. It's, it's great to hear from you. But you went from Brooklyn Paper. I think you went to Concord Monitor, correct? Yeah. That, then I was at the Brooklyn Paper. had a great, great year plus in Brooklyn and that's all it uh, takes baby that's all it takes the, uh, the the work of the paper was you know it was overwhelming as, as Vinny knows like <laughs> it was just it was just you know constantly kind of frantic and it was tough you know just a small group of people trying to cover that cover that much ground and and so I, I did start looking for um, for for to sort of get back to, to, to the daily papers but had no no luck with the New York papers I, I couldn't get yeah. in anywhere you know the tabs uh, Newsday I couldn't get in anywhere so I, I decided to go somewhat against my you know wishes my uh, I, I decided to go back up to New England and, and got a job at this very very good little uh, daily in New Hampshire the Concord Monitor it was a very different time back then because we weren't online this is this predates our, our internet website and all that stuff and and the, the reporters back then usually had to jump to a daily, a mm -hmm. small daily outside of New York before they could make the move to the Post. I think the, the first guy to actually make that move to the Post directly in, under my stewardship was, uh, was uh, Patrick Gallio. Oh, Gallio. Yeah, he yeah. was. He well, did let's that. not talk about Gallio. We're talking about McGillis, who's now at ProPublica, winning Polk Awards, winning Pulitzer's. We got to shift a little bit because you are at the front lines of American journalism now. You're covering the president. You're covering Washington, D.C., the White House. And my question is, because I try to do it for the Daily News. I don't know if you read my column. Thank you for saying such nice things. How do you cover a guy who is constantly making news? I mean, you, the Washington Post, your old former paper, had an article today about how Trump is literally trying to wear down the media. How do you do it? What, do you wake up at 5 in the morning and start following his tweets? It's really tough. I mean, there, there's also, I saw another story a week or two ago about how utterly he's now dominating world media. Mm -hmm. Like, there, there are these ways of quantifying how much attention, how much coverage people get. And he has, like, broken all the records. Like, you know, every, everyone, all celebrities, all news figures. Um, and and he, he's getting something like 100 times more coverage than the next person on the list. Right. Um, well, is that a good thing? It, it, sorry? Is that a good thing? Yeah, so... I, I'm really torn about this because, you know, on the one hand, we know, you know, on the one hand, it's very, there's a lot of good justification for covering him that heavily because he's he's massively consequential, he's um, and and he's and he's completely unlike anything we've had before in this incredibly powerful position. On the other hand, I really do worry that, um, well, first of all, I worry that we're that we're, that we're just missing a whole lot by covering him so exclusively that you know we've got all these very good people on the case now of covering him and 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 really you know looking at every angle every angle of his of his conflicts of interest and his and his rhetoric and and you know and his appointments and 
and I do wonder if there if there's a lot of stuff out there that's going even more uncovered than 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 has been the case. I mean, one of the big things that's happening these days in journalism is that there's been this incredible concentration of of media in the sort of media capitals of mm-hmm. New York and Washington, mm-hmm. um, and sort of maybe the Bay Area too, and. And while there's been a complete depletion of coverage pretty much everywhere else, and, and, and Trump is just sort of accelerating that trend where we're just all eyes are on this one person in this one place. And, and I worry about that. So I've tried my own, you know, it's tough. You sit here and you think, well, what am I going to, uh, if you have freedom like I do to sort of somewhat choose your, your subjects, you think, what, what should one concentrate on, right? And where do you even begin with this guy? And, and I've really tried to think about pieces that are, that are somewhat away from the ball. They might still involve him and, and sort of help, exp- you know, involve him in sort of the world that has produced him, but, they're, but that ideally they're things that are not too, um, not too redundant to what others are, are doing already. But you know, Alec, there's, <coughs> as you said, dozens of reporters covering the White House. It's very hard in an era when the president will tweet, literally tweet conspiracy theories about the former president or about other topics you can't simply ignore that yet by pursuing that that shiny object in this case that president obama allegedly ordered a wiretap of trump tower you you have to take your eyes off the prize because you can't let that stand right right i mean i, I do think that i'm definitely in the camp that believes that that the that t- tweets tweets like that need to be covered and addressed and um and you know, debunked when the when as need be, and and all that because they're they are going out. He has his couple million followers, and and or however million it is, and and they're 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 going out there. You just you cannot ignore them. Mm-hmm. And 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 I also I, I don't I'm not sure I necessarily believe that he that with all these kind of tweets that he's that there's some kind of grand strategy, um, you know, that to dis- to distract us, and if by writing about them we're falling into that strategy. You know, in fact, a lot of this stuff I think is coming out of a kind of a, a comp- compulsion uh, on, on his part that is not so strategic necessarily, and so I do think they need to be written about. I, I'm just not sure that they need to be written about by everyone. So, and you know, there's we, there's a, there are still a fair number of us, fair number of us in this business, despite all the cuts, and there's certainly a lot of us in in Greater Washington, and and I, and I so I just want to make I just hope that we that we still that there's almost like a division of labor where we're not all of us having to, to chase that shiny object. You know, if just uh, if it seems like a few of us can, can sort of do the job pretty well. So if you're in charge of that newsroom, you're putting a group of people in charge of, like, following these tweets and figuring them out, and then you're putting a separate group of people trying to keep their eye on the ball. That, that's what I'm hearing right, here? exactly, or, or off the ball, as, as the metaphor might be. Exactly, yeah. that, that you really um, you make sure that you've got a whole bunch of people who are not who do, do not are not getting uh, pulled this way and that way day to day by 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 his whims. Okay, but I now I got to ask the tough question, Alec. You and you open the door, as they say. Now you've written one of the great things about your career is you've actually written about the heartland. You've written about the so-called underclass. You've written about the underclass's revenge on November eighth. That's election day, in case you're paying attention to events. And that's a nice narrative, Alec. Very nice narrative. But I don't know if it's true. And just hear me out for a second. To me, that underclass is simply uneducated or sometimes unwilling to consider objective truth, say, about regulations, you know, that they actually keep the air and water clean, or even the positive contributions of immigrants, which we let the president demagogue. So my question is, you've been out there. 
Why are these people so easily swayed by a demagogue? Boy, I mean, it's, um, it's a really, that's a really tough question. It's a good question. And I think it, it goes actually to, to, to some of um, what I've been talking, was talking about just a minute ago about the decline of media mm-hmm. out there around the country. There is, there is, you cannot overstate just how much of a void there is of, of sort of responsible media and information in a lot of these places that there's no, there, there's, there's either barely any more local paper or local coverage or none at all. There's the, the fabric that people um, sort of used to be getting their, their, their news from in, in a lot of these places is pretty much gone. So they're relying just on their Facebook feed or um, mm-hmm. whatever sort of kind of conservative bubble media they might be getting. Um, then there's also, you know, these, the age-old sort of... Uh, Kind of crisis of, of education um, in this country, and I, mean, I had people as they were um, telling me why they were voting for Donald Trump would be apologizing for their lack of information. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were painfully self-aware about how shaky what they were saying to me was, and sh- how shakily uh, based it was. They were they were aware of just how they just didn't they weren't really sure about what they were talking about, like. It was, it, was, it was really extraordinary to sort of watch that. It was, it was sad. And um, so that's part of it. But to your you know, point about their, their sort of um, their, their cluelessness about things and kind of wrongness about some things, to me the most interesting voters were not so much the ones who have turned in this sort of Trumpian direction for some time now and in, in kind of really deep red corners of the country that have really kind of become lost to the Democrats for a while now. But, but to me, the more interesting people were, were people in places that ha- have actually been voting uh, Democratic until very recently, including voting for Barack Obama. And you just saw all these places that, that had been blue, even in 2012, um, that, that swung quite heavily, like 10, 20, 25 points in the other direction. And, and to me, that was the real mystery. Like, how can someone vote once or twice for Barack Obama and then vote for Trump, or or how or how can someone in some of these cases was not a case of switching, but a case of people coming out of the woodwork. What is it that brings someone who has not voted, you know, in years, if if not ever, out of the woodwork to suddenly vote for Donald Trump? Um, and, and and so it was it was that um, it, was, it was it was that part of the electorate that I that I really find most fascinating. Yeah. So you you've said a lot of things there, and I want to get back to local news and local newspapers. Uh, but but first, you know. Is the answer to that question that the economy really isn't as good as it as it can be, like, or as they as as people as it's purported to be? Like, we said that the uh, unemployment rate is at five percent right now. I mean, you're out there in, in the Midwest, you know, going to these small towns. Is is that the case? I mean, New York City, everything seems fine and dandy, but right. I you know, I don't know what it's like out there. And maybe no, these it's guys terrible out there. And this is it. This is exactly it. I mean, I've become convinced that the great overlooked story of our time is and maybe it's somewhat less overlooked now because of Trump, but, but is, is regional inequality. You know, we talk so much about income inequality and the 1% and the 99% and, and all that, I and mean, that's, that's, that's a huge problem. But the related huge problem that gets less attention is regional inequality. There, there's such massive gaps now between places and, and how well they're doing. It, the, if you just look, you look at the numbers, the, the gaps have really gotten bigger. We've always had rich and poor places, but the gaps have gotten a lot bigger. And, and it's now not just about poor, poor places like deepest Appalachia. It's, it's about cities that used to be 
really quite well to do um, that are now you know just badly slipping down the scale places like Dayton Ohio where I spent a lot of time last year and so you have these yeah you have these bubbles of prosperity like like the Bay Area Washington New York uh, Seattle um, Boston it, places that um, just keep getting you think that there'd be some kind of correction because these places have gotten so expensive that they you know they become almost you know uh, really hard to, to get by in they're so expensive so you think there'd be some kind of a leveling out that would happen economically uh, you know just economics would would take charge and, and even things out a little bit and rebalance but that's not happening and it, there's this winner take all effect where the winter cities keep getting more and more and more and and there's various reasons for that I, I think and but but that's what's happening and you have these places so these other places are falling so far behind they're aware of how much they're falling behind and and they just grow very very bitter and, and also just sad about it, demoralized. Yeah, but cities like Pittsburgh have transformed themselves, right? Why is it that mm-hmm. these cities, you know, or these smaller towns or whatever it might be in, in the Midwest don't do that? Is, is, there, a, is, is, is there a problem with, with their leadership there that they, they're not making the right decisions or what has to be done? Obviously, these jobs, uh, these, uh, you know, all the the jobs. Uh, You're talking about innovation, Vince. Well, no, I'm talking about the jobs that have left aren't oh. coming back. Right. So, well, part of it, like you cite Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a good case study. Pittsburgh. Um, part of it's that Pittsburgh's um, uh, real cratering happened earlier, mm-hmm. so that the collapse of the steel industry um, happened, uh, you know, quite a while ago, and so Pittsburgh hit bottom decades ago, and has had more time. To, to rebuild from that, and we also, you know, shouldn't should keep in mind that Pittsburgh, while it is has rebounded and and by some metrics, um, is also a vastly smaller place than it used to be. Like it has shrunk greatly. Um, you look at Pittsburgh's population decline is is way up there among the biggest population declines in the country. Um, so basically, a lot of people just kind of did give up on that place prior to its rebounding. And then and you also you look right around Pittsburgh, and those, those towns in the, Monon, in the Mon Valley south of Pittsburgh are, are really struggling. Um, so, um, Wait, but I've got to cut you off. I, I think with so places like Dayton, Dayton's real um, you know, dive, you know, sh- uh, decline has happened quite recently. The last decade was just brutal in Dayton. A lot of the big auto, uh, parts, auto, auto, auto parts manufacturing and, and other stuff left only in the last decade. So it's like they're at a different part in that in that rebound curve. Um, but I got I, I, I but I have to cut you off because you're talking about changing industries in a capitalist free market society. That's going to happen. If I'm a car maker, I'm going to get my parts from where they're cheaper, so that my product will be cheaper to American consumers who will ultimately benefit from that. And the problem becomes when our politicians demagogue that, and for example, go around the world saying that the NAFTA agreement, for example has been bad for American workers. Well, it's been bad for some workers, and it's been great for other workers, it's been great for the Mexican middle class, et cetera, which then buys our products and our food. And why do, why do we allow our politicians, and we're journalists, why do we allow our politicians to demagogue these issues? Well, because, because in some cases, it's actually, it's actually not that clear. Mm. There's, um, I, I've looked at you know, a lot of the economic research on this stuff, and NAFTA, the effect of NAFTA has definitely been overstated by people like Donald Trump. However, the effect of letting China into the WTO in 2000, as, as Bill Clinton did, mm-hmm. um, people, the, the economists 
think more and more that that really did have a really big impact on 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 manufacturing in, in places like Ohio. You, that that's where the number. That's when you saw um, the real hit happening in a lot of these places. And there's just and you can, you know we can debate whether it's whether that's sort of as it should be you know for the reasons you described because that's how the markets work. Mm-hmm. But the, but, there's the, but there's no question that we have not done <clears throat> nearly as much as we could have to to sort of deal with the. Um, the consequences, the fallout in these places that were especially hard hit by this. So even if you think that this is something that that sort of should be happening, that this is sort of a, the, you know fact of nature kind of, we've not been doing a very good job of sort of, of, of helping the pla- places that have been inordinately hit by this. Another thing to point out about this is that in some cases the market, it's not really the free market. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just a matter of markets working as they should. A big part of the problem these days, so it's causing a lot of this concentration of economic wealth, is actually, uh, one could argue, a very um, a case of monopoly, of of weak antitrust um, enforcement. We have a situation now where you where you have industries that used to be spread all around the country, where the, where the money was just kind of. And, and the economics and, and the business were spread all around the country. Think of retail. Mm-hmm. You'd, you have retail. You had companies everywhere. You had regional, you know, retail chains, bigger retail chains, mom and pop chains. It was all kind of spread around. And now we have one company that is more and more and more taking over retail in this country, if not the world. And it's based in Seattle. And a lot of the sort of retail wealth of this country is now flowing to Seattle. I mean, Amazon's new headquarters in Seattle has a biosphere in it. It's like a freaking rainforest nice. that they've got in there. Because they have more money than God. They have more money than they know what to do with. And meanwhile, you know, malls left and right are closing. Um, you know, uh, Macy's, Sears, all these places, pennies, they're all closing. They just can't, they can't keep up. And, that, yeah, that's probably a competition thing. But you could argue, argue that we're getting, getting close to a, a, an antitrust thing here. Same thing with media, right? Uh, media money used to be spread all around the country, newspaper, TV, radio chains all around the country. Now more and more of that money, virtually all digital ad revenue, is now being gobbled up by Facebook and Google. Mm-hmm. So nearly all of that money is flowing to the Bay Area, and Mark Zuckerberg has more money than God. And this, these are it's like our antitrust system is not sort of figured out how to deal with these new um, these, 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 these new tech giants. Basically. But is it, is it, they're not dealing with it properly because they went about it in a different way. It's not like these companies came in right. in, in the old-fashioned way and just kept buying up and buying up and buying up. Or, like AT&T, had a monopoly from the start. You know, these companies did it in, you know, through disruption right. and, and actually coming up with a, a better business model. So, I, I, it's kind of tough to, to say to an antitrust place, well, we got to do something about this, but uh, maybe we're getting to that point, right? Not yeah, me, Vince. I think we are going to have to do something. But at some point, I mean, you, the, 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 they're, they're, they've become so giant that it's, it's becoming pretty glaring that, that something's off. Well, Gersh calls me trickle-down Demacelli. Yeah, he's trickle-down Demacelli. He goes, I'm Gersh Kunzman, tax-and-spend Democrat. Vince is trickle-down Demacelli. And, you know... Uh, but one of my one of my uh, pet peeves with the government, or what I think they need to do, they got to protect the borders. They got to give you ways to get around, and they have to make sure that there aren't giant monopolies controlling the money. I would add one more thing into that, McGillis, and maybe you got parts of this list you want to add to. I believe that regulations that keep the air, water, labor laws, all that stuff clean and 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 not you know child labor, all that. I think that's part of government responsibility too. 
Oh, we'll leave it at that. No, I want I want to see if McGillis has something. What else is a government responsibility? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, yes, I would agree that the government ought to to do those basic things. Well, it's not going to under Donald Trump. He's going to cut so many regulations. This is me getting into my into my Mark Levin voice, but he's cutting so many regulations that I wonder if the if the basic air, water, sewage, any of that stuff's going to work. No, I mean, and and that exactly. Then it's you know that's the government needs to do it because it's the commons, right? Mm-hmm. It's the law of the commons. It's otherwise no no one else is going to uh, to give a damn about it. And um, no, we're seeing now just here. I, I live in Baltimore, and they, their proposed budget slashes the um, the Chesapeake Bay cleanup money from mm-hmm. seventy three million to five million. Yeah. Um, the, they, uh, or the Rust Belt. Thing, you know, we talk about these these communities struggling with closed up factories and whatnot. The the proposed budget completely eliminates the Superfund uh, money for cleaning up you know brownfields, uh, abandoned industrial sites so that you can make new use of them. Well, you know, Vince, Vince doesn't care about Superfund. He just thinks pollution is just going to go away. No, that's not what I was saying. Well, but but you, oh, yeah, but what it was a gesture you made just now. The gesture I made was the Superfund, the goal of the Superfund isn't necessarily to pay for the cleanup. The goal of the Superfund is to get people that cause the, the, uh, the pollution to get rid of it. I know here in New York City, you know, uh, the gas company, National Grid, they just went to the government and said, hey, we got to pay for this big, cleanup of the Gowanus Canal in Newtown Creek, and we want to raise rates to do that, and of course the state allowed them to. So who's really paying for it? Well, you and I are paying for it, but just Alec, just so you know, we are literally bounded by two Superfund sites. We got the Gowanus Canal and Newtown Creek. So oh, yeah, I'm, I remember. I mean, Vince and I are like, we, we don't even know where to go for lunch, because there's literally two Superfund sites around us. Well, we, I, I got to bring it back to... Uh, lunch? Thank no, you. No, local news. Oh, yeah, sorry. What we talked about before. Now, you, you said that when you get out to the Midwest, uh, these people are underinformed. I guess is a simple way to put it. They don't have the local newspapers that they that they used to have. Uh, I, you know, I'm part of a, a local paper, you know, conglomerate, and you know, we're always being told that the local papers are still doing well. The local papers aren't the ones that are the problems. It's the dailies that are having issues. So my question is, when you're out there, do you see a lot of weekly papers and stuff like that? And then on top of that. At this point in time, the New York Times and the Washington Post has a great amount of reach, more reach than it's ever had, without having to actually get people to buy a newspaper. They can, you know, you can go See, online. It's the internet, Vince. <laughs> you can go online and read all this stuff. So how come these people that, that are, like, all of a sudden confused about what's going on aren't reading those things? Or, or are they and they're just not getting it? Uh, good question. So you're right, the, 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 the really small, you know, some of the really smallest local community newspapers in some of these places are still making it to some degree because they were never, you know, that reliant on, they're, they're not, they're, they're such small, small fry almost that, that, the, that these market forces don't, don't uh, hit them as much. Where, where the real destruction has been has been at that sort of, um, the, the, the metro paper that, you know, places like the Dayton Daily News and Cincinnati Inquirer and Cleveland Plain Dealer and Columbus Dispatch, you look at these papers and they are so so thin now. I mean, it's heartbreaking, and they're doing the best they can. But but those the those I, I also believe that's the case with the New York Daily News. Oh, thanks, thanks, Vince. Appreciate that. Yeah. And um, so, and those are the papers that would were doing serious, you know, coverage at scale of like you know major local and state issues, and and th- and that's that whole that whole swath is is now you know really kind of just hanging on for dear life. 
the and so that's the sort of those are the kind of papers that I think we're providing a, a kind of uh, some level of uh, daily sort of civic political knowledge that is kind of that is more and more not not present. Um, yes, the voters can always go online and find all manner of responsible information um, at places like the Times and the Post. Um, the but that requires uh, that requires a certain level of effort. It's not just something that's right in front of you, uh, sort of on the breakfast table. Um, it requires, you know, also a kind of a discernment, right? That that if you're going out there online, um, that that you even have the the um, framework as a reader to and, and as a kind of critical reader to to bring yourself to the post instead of to Newsmax. Mm-hmm. And, right, it's not in your Facebook uh, feed, perhaps. Maybe your friends aren't reading it, and they're not, they're not putting it on their Facebook. Right. And that, it, we saw a lot of that. That's but, like a big crisis. But is it possible that they believe that the, the Times and the Washington Post are just the voice of the left, and they're not going to read that just based on that assumption? Well, s- well certainly for some people, but, but, I think, but I'm not sure that, that would, that's the, again, that's, that's probably more the hard, hardened um, uh, Sort of Trumpian voter that that has been lost to the Democrats for some time now. Um, for someone, the, the people, the, the sort of Obama to Trump voters that I spoke with, it was more. I keep thinking of this one woman who I quoted at length in one of my pieces, uh, just outside Dayton, a heavy construction worker who voted for Obama and who's now voting for Trump, and 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 she just talked about how overwhelmed she was in her own life, barely keeping up. Um, as a you know single mom with a tough job and all sorts of health issues and money issues and and that she was just she kept apologizing for not being well informed and saying you know they they just if it's if you're poor it's hard to keep up and 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 that's i it was very hard to picture her like sitting down at night to at um at the computer to like do diligent reading on um you know, on NYT, uh, Well, here's the difference, Alec. I think the difference is, it, listen, it's always been difficult to be poor in America. I certainly don't know that from experience, but I, I've heard. But my point is, in the old days, there was Walter Cronkite. You turn the TV on, and America right. had a voice. Now, I'm not saying I, I love Cronkite, but the point is, people felt like there was one place to get informed on issues. We don't have that. But the funny thing is, we actually have so much more information and access to information that's what makes it so troubling to me. Right. And the, and the other thing that's so troubling, of course, is just the, the, the this poisoning of the notion that there even can be, you know, objective reported mm-hmm. truth. And, mm-hmm. and that's what I, I mean, I find that so disheartening when I'm out there. And, and, and you have this just deep wariness of, of sort of us, as the, us the national media, and, and, and the notion that, that we, we're even trying to get at things that are, that are true and, and based on, on real things, and and Trump is and that's been there. That was there before, of course, and we can go into how it got how it got that way. That lack of trust, but Trump is just, of course, badly, greatly exacerbating that. Right, and um, that's part of his goal. Uh, you know, I, again, you've read my column. You know how awesome I've been on this issue. It's actually <laughs> part of his goal to undermine not the left versus the right, but true versus untrue, so that people like you, like you say, you go out into the hinterlands or you're talking to people in the cities and they actually don't know what's true it's scary right no it's re- it really is scary and i and again i think part part of this comes back to the notion that that people do not have media in their lives locally that if you had still you know 
a whole bunch of local reporters out there, people you'd see at the courthouse, at mm-hmm. City Hall, um, at the school board, um, you know, just, just Jane Johnson with her notepads, you know. Or, or Vince DiMasselli at Community Board 6. Exactly. So you still have it. You, you guys are still providing it, but a lot of places it's not there. And, and so the face of the media becomes, you mm-hmm. know, Wolf and Bill O'Reilly, whatever, instead of, you know, handsome, Vince Di, trustworthy Vince DiMasselli. It's so. funny you went for handsome first. Oh, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. We, we talk about that all the time. All right, so then the bottom line, Alec, and this is a question that Vince and I talk about. Vince and I, you say we're on some version of the front lines, but we don't feel that way. We look at you. You're winning Polk Awards. You're winning pool shows. And I'm not just kissing your ass. You're doing kind of work that that's going to live on. What about Vince and me? Should we feel bad that all we're doing is mentoring the next generation of young kids and maybe some of them make it? Should we feel bad? No, not at my goodness. I mean, I, I, my, everything I've been saying here is, is is basically about the fact of how much your work matters. And, oh. and this is really where it's at. It's where it's at for the profession, but it's also where it's at sort of for the whole freaking civic fabric of the country. I mean, it's, it's so, so important. And I just, I am, I'm sort of terrified about what happens if, if it's not there in places where it's not there. Well, I, I see this with the, with the dailies here in New York. And, and when they go online now, they're trying to win the national audience. And I see, I see way too much competition there, and I think that, you know, if, you, if a, a company like ours can expand and grow beyond where we are in, in the, the four boroughs of New York and out into the, uh, the surrounding suburbs, we can start doing some great things. You and pick a lane. You pick a lane, Yeah, Vince. and I think that lane is actually local news because no one is doing it, and no one does it better than we do it, and we make money at it. So I, I think that's out there. I think Patch tried to do it but did it in such a bad way that it was never going to work but i i think that there is a roadmap that that we can take and and you know we can bring it from the ground floor up you know what i'm saying i mean it sounds like mcgillis is going to love what you just said i don't know maybe i sure am (laughs) but i'm confused mcgillis listen listen, i've won awards i've won low level suburban newspapers of america awards gersh was once editor of the year Uh, well that's fine thank you hit the triple crown editor of the year newspaper okay fine 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 but but, and I've done Pulitzer-worthy work. But, how, but you've done it. You've gotten the awards. How do you, in all seriousness, Vince is a nuts and bolts guy. How'd you win that Polk? Did you actually apply, or it's just so obvious that you're awesome? Um, <laughs> I, 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 I... You applied. You applied. ProPublica, Pro <laughs> which, you know, is just an amazing organization, and everyone should support it as they're able, because it relies entirely on... On, on donors, um, large and small donors. I mean, all that time I, I spent last year uh, that I got to spend on these stories was thanks to ProPublica huh. and, their, and their donors. Um, they, you know, they, we have, I have colleagues there who, who helped put the um, submissions together. I'm very indebted to them. Just so, so you know, that's yeah, pro, they, they, pro, they, ProPublica.org. I'm just giving that out. Just right. nonpartisan from me. If you want to do it, great. ProPublica.org. <laughs> but what's it? What's a day like? I mean, you're, you're hopping on a plane. You're flying somewhere in the Midwest. He's you're hopping get, on a plane. You're getting off at. Well, maybe he's taking a train. I don't I know. I think you're taking a bus, McGillis. <laughs> you yeah. get off, and then what? You stand around a coffee shop. Um. So. Yeah, I, I when I go out there, I'm. I no, I generally don't just you know stand at a coffee shop. I usually, I off. I try to do, a lot of advanced reading so that I have a lot of the. The, the context of a place sort of in mind already and and then also have some notion of who who the best people to talk to would be or the best, best places to go would be 
and um, and then have so I have appointments lined up often. So it's not pure a pure kind of man on the street sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I I just I just love going out there. I am never more alive as a reporter than if I've if I'm in my rental car. Yeah. Um, yeah. Listen to tunes. Listen to tunes. In, in these places, I, I just that's sort of what I live for. That used to be me. Just so you know, Vince, you don't know this, McGillis, but I um, used to work for the New York Post before Vince took me off the scrap heap of American journalism, and that was my beat. They sent me up to cover, you know, when Clinton would go on a vacation to Martha's Vineyard. They sent me out to cover an execution in Texas. And I, lo- I just love talk. I mean, look, we're not media elite. I want to talk to everybody in this fucking country. I want to just talk to them. We, right. don't, we can't do that's, it anymore. Exactly. It's, it, that's what it's all about. I mean, the re- reporting is supposed to be and the great thing about reporting is that they, they're paying you to, to talk to people and write. I mean, those are two things you get paid for. Mm-hmm. And I... And, and I worry that, you know, we've become, as part of this kind of, this, this concentration in, uh, in, in, in Washington and New York, and also just the, the, the sort of internet um, mm-hmm. model of, of journalism, that, that a lot of us have become way more desk-bound and office-bound than we used to be. And, and you know, the Times, is, the Times is guilty of that, too, though. Like, the other day they had yeah. a story, how did Twitter react to, I can't remember exactly what it was. That's, a, that's not a Times trope. Why did they do that? Getting lazy, right? No, it's. I mean, it, we've just become far more reactive than we used to be, and just um, it's. The, I mean, the office is the office is, is kind of deadly for reporters. I mean, mm-hmm. if, yeah, if you're sitting there like going through a database or making calls, and you can you can do plenty of digging from from your desk, but but um, otherwise you need to get out. Yeah, though no, they do. They don't even use the phone. I mean, they do everything with email. Yeah. And it's like, I'm like, pick up the phone and call someone. They'd like to hear your voice. Trust me, you'll do much better. And I used to say to my reporters, listen, if you want to expense a pair of shoes because you wore out the leather, that's fine. You can expense a pair of shoes. No one ever took me up on that. No one ever did. They should. They should. Listen, it wouldn't be, it would not be a McGillis-Demaselli conversation if we didn't talk baseball. So the question I have for you, are you happy the Yankees have made this move to to go with the young uh, players? Or do you think... That, or you'd be happier as a Boston Red Sox fan if they just continued spending money crazily and losing. Exactly. I, I, I would prefer you to, you know, to keep paying A Rod until he's fifty. And, and, and I think that's in the works. <laughs> full full disclosure: I find this 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 part of the discussion disquieting as a Met fan. <laughs> and it's oh, there it is—the sound effects. And it wouldn't be a, it, again. We got to talk about Pittsfield. Alex from Pittsfield. Are you, you aware? Of I this? did. I knew he worked in Connecticut. I did not know you were a native of uh, Pittsfield. Yeah, he grew up, and his dad worked for the Pitts, the Pittsfield Eagle, right? Uh, Berkshire Eagle. Yeah. Berkshire Eagle. Oh yeah, good. Right. Picture. And when Alex started working for us at Brooklyn Paper, he was the only guy who could fill a headline properly. Because he'd done it in his dad's office, sitting there counting up the letters and making it work. It was very imp- I was very impressed by it. I was very impressed I mean, by he it. knows about how many uh, pikas in an inch. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> my, my great joy as a kid being drawing up a newspaper was getting to go to the composing room um, and see the next day's comics. That was, that was very thrilling. See, when oh, I, when I was a kid, schedule. I used to like going to the composing room because all the old composing guys would have like uh, Pirelli tire, cu- tire ad calendars with all the naked women on them. Too. Yeah, we missed that. Well, I'm a bit of a legend in, in Pittsfield. No question about as you that. Know, I went up there uh, a couple of years ago, and people walked up to me, and they're like, you're that guy. You're, well, that what, guy. Well, you're the guy who did what? Uh, we had a softball game once. Alec, you remember that softball game? Oh, I sure do, Vinny. It's legendary. Yeah, it is. Like, they go up there. I, I, went, I think I went five for five. I hit two homers, and I played every position in the field. Glory days. 
They'll pass you by, glory days. Yeah, I lost, I think, two of them in the woods. One of them Alec had to chase after and go get. Wow. That's like a bitch slap is what that is. It was one of the greatest games of all time. All right, we got to get out. Listen, no, we do. Alec McGillis, you've been an unbelievably gracious guy to give us so much time. I do have one last question for you. I'm working on a book, believe it or not. I can't tell you the details of it, but in my book, Secretary of Energy Rick Perry ends up dead, killed in a conspiracy. Now, I know you've written a lot about Perry. Give me some help on this plot. What plot conspiracy would, would end up with Rick Perry dead? Go. Just make it up, because you know the guy. Make it up. (laughs) I'll tell you the murder weapon, just to give you more information. The murder weapon is the leotard he wore on Dancing with the Stars. Right. Oh, and he, he, like, strangled with it? He strangled with it, yeah. Oh, gosh. So who killed him? Did the Russians kill him? Did the Texas secessionists kill him? Or Colonel Mustard? (laughs) (laughs) Boy, um... I, mean, I think you have to go with something that's that's nuclear, right? Because he's the guy who uh, apparently yeah. didn't really know that there was that that being Secretary of Energy involved involved being in charge of all of our nuclear weapons. Very good, very good. Concept. You just gave it. You just gave it to me. That's why he's the Pulitzer Polk winner. Listen, you're winning the Polk. Now you're coming to New York. When are you coming to New York? I'm coming to New York. Um, in exactly a month. I'd like to buy that guy dinner. No, one month from now, you're going to get together with us. I need you to come into the newsroom to say hi to all the reporters here that are, like, awestruck. Yeah. Between you and Glenn Thrush, I'm like, they're like, uh, Dimasilli knows the legends. Well, you, you knew Kunzman. Well, yeah. I'd be glad too. to do that. No, that would be great. We'll, 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 we'll set it up. We'll set it up off air. But we got we to gotta let you go because yeah. we haven't even done a commercial. Well, just Alec McGillis, just so our listeners know, ProPublica.org, he writes couple of times a week, maybe once a week, I don't know. You can donate and help the reporters like Alec and other other public journalists. Not guys like me. I work at the Daily News. They pay me fine. You don't have to support my work. Just go online. Support ProPublica.org. Alec, last word, anything. Go. Boy, um, last word is just I, you guys got to keep doing what you're doing, and I really urge your listeners to 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 read you and, 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 and all the other local reporters, wherever you might be. I mean, it's just so, so important. Wow. This, is, this is the foundation of everything, and, and I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to live in a world without places like the Brooklyn Papers. Wow. There you go. That, that's, I'm leaving it at that. That's it. Who doesn't want to live in a world without Vince DiMaselli? <laughs> Alec McGillis, thank you very I, much I for also, joining us. I also don't want to live in a world without me. There he goes. <laughs> all right, Alec McGillis, thank you very much. <laughs> ProPublica.org is the website. Alec McGillis is the reporter Pulitzer. Me. And Polk winner. There he goes. Thank you, Alec. We got to pay some bills. We got to pay some bills because that interview was so good. Wow. We didn't want, I didn't want to break into because I thought he would say, well, you know, guys, you're going to do some ads. Yeah, I know. I got to go. All right. So I would have said if I had him on the phone, Alec, when was the last time you saw a quality and affordable dentist? You haven't because you live in Baltimore. You don't live anywhere near Dr. Joseph Lichter in Midwood. But Lichter's got a state-of-the-art office with hygienists and great prices such as, look, I got it right here. Zoom whitening, $3.95. Implants, $12.50. Invisalign, the adult braces, $3.995. That's $3,000, whatever. The point is it's cheap. Smile makeovers, dental implants, porcelain veneers. This guy's also the dentist for the New York Riveters. You know they need good teeth. Call him, 718-339-7878. Dr. Joseph Lichter. It's josephlichterdds.com. Wow. When Alec comes here, we promised him a dinner. Yeah. So where are we going to take him? we got to take him to Atlas Steakhouse. Atlas Steakhouse, because Atlas Steakhouse will offer you 
and Alec McGillis a unique dining experience. First, he's going to sit down. He's going to choose a steak. Every cut there is aged to tender perfection on site. He's probably going to pair it, I'm guessing, with, with one of their wines from their exclusive, extensive. Yeah, it's going to be red. Wine list. Uh, he could have a signature cocktail. Sure. But I think he's going to go with the wine. All right. Maybe, maybe he'll have a recommendation for us that night. He's going to enjoy a succulent appetizer as their master chef crafts his choice cut as he desires. I'm going to guess medium rare. When that main course arrives, he will understand why at Atlas Steakhouse, they always offer you, me, and him a cut above the rest. Atlas Steakhouse at 943 Coney Island Avenue. You can visit him online at atlassteak.com. Now, Alec McGillis has won a Pulitzer. He's won a Polk Award, but he's not getting any younger. Nope. So if he was still on the line, I would say, look, Alec, what about Village Caramax? What about thinking about it? It's a Medicaid-managed long-term plan. The most important thing is staying in your home and doing the journalism you want to do. Village Care Max will help. They got a whole team of professionals. They work with your doctor. They help you obtain the best health care options available. And it's not, it's part of your Medicaid. So just call them, 800-469-6292 or visit villagecaremax.org. Village Care Max, live the life and do the journalism you want to live. You know, I have Alex's address and every one of our guests, we send them a prepackaged Atlas Meat Market Selection That's very nice. Of prime cuts. We're going to do it for Alec this time. Well, the reason we do it is because Alec, because uh, meat, Atlas Meat Market is so affordable. It's so affordable, and they deliver anywhere in these continental United States. You know how Omaha Steaks does it? I don't know how they. Well, do Well, you it. make your picks. You want some filet mignons. You want some New York strips. You want some ribeyes. Whatever you might want, they package it up for you. They put it on ice, and they send it right to your door. Best of all, what's best of all, Gersh? Atlas Meat Market is halal. Oh, it is. It is halal meat. So you Meaning you're it. not going to get that crappy meat and you're not going to get pork. You're going to get chicken, you're going to get steak, and you're going to get veal. And every once in a while, you might have some shticken. <laughs> Don't start, Vince. Shticken is a steak chicken. Atlas Meat Market, open right now, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Can't make it to the store? Call them up, order it. They will deliver it right to your door. You can give them a buzz at 347-915-2000. Operators are standing by Atlas Meat Market, 387 Avenue X, right here in Brooklyn. All right. You know, so, Johnny, thank you for the ad music. We only got a couple more minutes in the show, and I would be remiss if I didn't. First of all, thank Alec McGillis, Polk Award winner and Pulitzer Prize winner, for being on the show, former Brooklyn paper reporter. But I would be remiss if I didn't keep talking about our advertisers, because we only ran one ad. Yeah, we Fact did. of the matter is, Vince, I've been to Atlas Steakhouse with you. Yes, we have. I had a Godfather, which is a signature cocktail involving whiskey. It was delicious. Mm-hmm. I had a New York Strip, because that's my cut. I had it medium rare. It was delicious. Yep. Surprise of all was the crab cake. You loved the I crab cake. I loved the crab cake. And, of course, I enjoyed the desserts. But you know what I loved about the desserts? Yeah. Each dessert, we, and we tried them all, <laughs> each one was sweeter than the last. That was only because they stacked them up from less sweet to sweet. Yeah, well, that's how we asked them to do it. I and mean, they do it your I, way. I, I, I had asked them to do it the other way. I wanted each dessert to be less sweet than the last. And you're also getting older. I am getting older, so I would be remiss if I didn't say, when I get to be about 65, I am going to call Village Care Max or go online at villagecaremax.org. Mm-hmm. The only reason for that, Vince, is you know me. I'm having sex. That's right. I love sex. I mm-hmm. see the face of God in an orgasm. I've we, said that I've before. heard this before, yes. The point is, I don't want to stop having sex just because I turned 65. No. I want to make sure I stay in my home. I don't want to be at some nursing home with jello and bad sex. No, that's Village that's, Care Max. That's what they're known there. for. Yeah. They're known for jello and bad sex. And when you're in your own home, you can have whatever pills you need to get the job done. Well, I don't know about pills, but Village Care Max, if I need those pills, they'll work with my healthcare professional. So I'm, I'm going to say, Village Care Max, you, not yet. I'm only 51. 
couple of years, I'm looking to you. There you go. Anyway, and Some I also would be like remiss Jell-O. if I didn't. I'd also be. Re- What'd you say? Some people like Jello. You know? Nothing wrong with Jello. No. And I would also be remiss if I didn't say, listen, Vince, I had a toothache recently. I didn't tell you about it because it got solved so quickly. Why? Because uh, you went to Dr. Joseph Lichter. Now, Lichter and I have a personal relationship. He's a friend of the show. He, he cured it right away. Mm-hmm. No charge, by the way, because I'm because I'm Gersh. You're Gersh Kuntzman. But he said to me, "Hey, you know, I got customers come in all the time. Just a little pain. Yeah, fixes it right away. And you know why? Because your smile is our priority. That's their slogan. But it's not just that. Bleaching is cheap. Implants are cheap. Invisalign, veneers, and they're the dentist for the rivers. Seven one eight. Three three nine seven eight seven eight. Your smile is Joseph Lichter's priority. You know, I've been sick the last few days, and I'm, I think I'm thinking I've been sick. Why am I, I getting alerts on your phone? I haven't had enough protein in my diet. Really? Yes. And so, you know, what my wife recommended. What'd she say? On the way home tonight, she says stop over at Atlas Meat Market. Oh, that's a good move because yeah. you're, it's on your way to the Rock. It is kind of on my way, a little worth, out of the way. It's worth going out. But of the But it's way. worth the trip. It's worth the trip. Because I'm going to get the fresh cuts that I need to cook up right when I get home. I say, least do me a favor. Turn the grill on, yep. get it nice and hot. Yep. All right? Yep. Yep. All I'm going to do when I get home yeah. is I'm going to take a little salt and a little pepper. You're not going to kiss your wife when you walk in? No. I'm going right, to get right to work. Right? A little salt. I thought kissing your wife was work. A little salt. Hey-o! A little salt, a little pepper. And you know what you do to those steaks? You just put them on the grill. No. Oh. You take a little butter. <laughs> you take a little butter. Because I'm getting the flame in you. I was trying to make it easy. You take a little butter and you smear butter all around. A little garlic right? butter? You get, no, just regular butter. Salt, regular pepper, American butter. kind of high water butter, could, or that Irish butter with the no water. No, it's regular it's Land of Lakes. Land of Lakes. There you go. It's regular butter. You smear it all across the steak. All right, and then you put it and you put it on the grill, very hot, four minutes on each side, and you flip it twice. You flip it twice. Twice. First time, four minutes, flip. Four minutes, flip. Four minutes, flip. Four minutes, flip. See, I got a new done. I got Medium a new, rare, perfect. I got a new technique. That's a sixteen-minute steak. I call. I it. would have called your wife and said, at least. Do me a favor. Put a cast iron grill on the put, sorry, a cast iron pan. Put it on the flame. Yeah, you could do that too. I'm gonna put the steak on there, and then the minute I do it, two minutes on each side. Then I throw it in the oven, 350 for about six minutes. Done. You could do that because the cast iron pan, Johnny, it allows the that. heat. The problem I have with the cast iron pan in the house is it tends to go with a lot of smoke. That's why I put it in the oven. I know, but when you're cooking just those first six minutes, yeah, yeah. you can have an alarm go off. I don't like that. I'm outside uh, on the grill. Enough. I'm grilling it. I'm having it my way. Well, Guys, listen, that's if, the show. If I know. That's the show. We've done a lot of ads. We've talked about meat. And we also talked to Polk Award and Pulitzer Prize winning, no, not novelist, he's a journalist, Alec McGillis. Where did he get his start? Well, other papers, but the Brooklyn paper. He, no, said, he said it said today. where it all started. He said it's where it all started. So Everything we got to get out. Play us out, Johnny. I'm Gersh Kunstman of the Daily News doing the Lord's work, according to Alec McGillis. Vince DiMaselli, handsome man, also doing the Lord's work at the Brooklyn Paper. We got to get out. Tune in next week. We'll be back. We will. See you next week.